0: You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, dear friends, great to have you with us today. Remember, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight somewhere in this world today, making disciples of the nations. So we want you to stay tuned. We want you to stay encouraged. We've got a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, all kinds of great things we could be talking about today. But I was uh, was thinking in terms of sexuality and particularly the, the homosexual thing that's been going on with all of our churches and with our, all of our culture and just the, the sexual confusion that's going on. And I just wondered, who could I get on here to talk about that? So that's a much more of an expert on these kinds of issues than I am. And I I, uh, I started thinking, really, let's get the expert, the number one guy. That gentleman's name is Robert Gagman. Uh, he's written a, a number of books, but probably the premier one is The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. Put out by Abingdon Press. Really, it's it's been out some time now, over twenty years. It was uh it was printed in two thousand two. But he is the guy to go to. So I just called up and said, "Would would you mind coming on?" And uh, he said he would. And so we're going to proceed with that interview right now. And again, it's it's our tall honor to have him on. He's brilliant, and of course, he knows these issues like the back of his hand. So thanks so very much for uh, listening in to this interview between life-changing discipleship and the great Robert Gagnon. Well, we're very delighted to have with us uh, Robert Gagnon, who uh, is a a huge expert uh, in the New Testament, just straight up, uh, but on sexual ethics in the New Testament and biblically as a whole. And so thanks so very much for joining us, sir. Pleasure for me to be here, Matt. Now, listen, there are many arguments for full same-sex inclusion in our churches today. Do those arguments do justice to the biblical text and to really even the current scientific data?
1: Well, those arguments that want to support homosexual unions within the church really don't do justice to the biblical text, nor even the scientific and philosophical uh, contribution that we can make. And that's because the witness of scripture on the issue of homosexual practice is about the strongest witness in the field of ethics that you can get anywhere in the entire Bible, not just even on the level of sexual ethics, ethics, period. Okay, I will grant the witness against murder is slightly stronger, but other than that, and idolatry, uh, but other than that, we're talking about, in fact, this is the way it worked in in early Judaism, by the way, uh, when they were talking about to unbelievers, pagans, uh, about the Jewish faith. Uh, the assessment of the pagan world uh, often moved from idolatry to murder to sexual immorality of which same-sex intercourse was regarded as and was most, most extreme. So we're talking really from Genesis, the creation text in Genesis, right up through Revelation, including Jesus in between, is a very strong, unanimous witness. It's pervasive across both Testaments. Uh, it's a not just a minor view, but a very strongly held view. Uh, it's a countercultural view. That is, it's held against a prevailing, at least partial support for same-sex unions in both the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, uh, it's by any measure or criteria of significance, this would be a great one.
0: Hmm. So when we're saying that we, when it begins to feel like we might be in the minority here, this is where the Christian faith has lived a good bit of its history.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically pulled the rug out from sexual ethics period. Because the male female requirement for sexual relations is the most important intra human requirement that scripture puts forward. Hmm. So, now how are you going to be? We'll talk, I guess, about Jesus at some point, but uh, uh, we'll see this true also for Jesus. And how can, in any sense, you call, can one call Jesus Lord? If one adopts a position on sexual ethics that obliterates the very foundation
0: from which he operates, it's extraordinary. So, what's the most common hermeneutical mistake made by those who interpret the Bible to say homosexual and really other forms of deviation from traditional Christian sexual ethics is permissible?
1: Oh, what's the most common mistake, hermeneutically speaking? Oh, let me count the ways. I mean, it's it's legion, um, there are just so many different ways in which people misunderstand the text, just even on a logic level. So for example, the argument that infrequent mention indicates a lack of severity for the offense. I mean, I could also introduce other issues that uh, they didn't know anything about orientation in antiquity or or that innateness means acceptance of an impulse, uh, or that they had no consciousness of um, committed same-sex unions in antiquity. I mean, there's so many, but we start with the first one about infrequency of mention being an indicator that the offense is not severe. Let's just think about that for a moment. Uh, Matt, uh, how many times have you gone to a church service where the pastor delivered a homily on why you shouldn't have sex with your parents. Have you ever, ever had that happen? No, never. No. <laughs> I mean, even I haven't done that yet. I uh, gave a sermon on that. Uh, and, you know, have you ever deduced from that in frequency of mention? In fact, no mention. Have you ever deduced from that that the pastors that you have heard from? held some secret acceptance mm-hmm. for man mother or man father or woman father or mother incest. Mm. Nope <laughs> oh, that's funny. I never deduced that either. <laughs> you know, in fact, I deduced the opposite that it would be such a scandalous subject, even to mention I mean there's a there's a statement like this and in Ephesians uh, 6, that uh, even the very mention of some forms of sexual immorality are already a loss for the church, Mm -hmm. because this should be pro forma. Everyone should, it should be obvious. It's an irreducible minimum. If, If we have to teach on that, we already have a major problem for the church, I mean, if they, if, if, if you were to talk about in the church about incest along those lines, you probably have to ask first, all the children will have to be removed. Mm. You know, you have to give a trigger warning up front uh, because, you know, it, the reason why we don't talk about it so much is because it is a violation of an absolute essential foundational element. And that's what's going on in scripture with regard to same-sex intercourse. You don't need a lot of discussion about the issue. It's set in place from the creation text on. Every every discussion of human sexuality in scripture, every narrative, every proverb, every, every law in Mosaic legislation.
2: Every metaphor,
1: every discussion whatsoever of sexual ethics in scripture, always, without exception, presumes a male-female requirement. No exception whatsoever. So it's not just, so I would also add, by the way, in saying that, It really, to say it's infrequently mentioned is really a a misunderstanding of what we actually have in scripture, because it's part, it's the essential part of the whole fabric of sexual ethics in scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. So yet explicitly mentioned, not an extraordinary number of times, more than most people think, but not an extraordinary number of times, but that's again because it is regarded, same-sex intercourse is regarded as the greatest violation of consensual sexual ethics for adult human beings, Hmm. even worse than incest. Hmm. It's scandalous, you know? And I I just parenthetically mentioned, you know, Maybe some of our hearers may have heard of something called the Loeb Classical Library series, Hmm. put out by Harvard University Press. So, this is sort of a collection, largest collect translation collection of uh, Greek uh, uh, and Latin texts from antiquity. And on one side, these just these little volumes, and on one side of the page, you'll see the Greek or Latin text of the ancient uh, figure, and then on the right, you'll see an English translation. It used to be back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and before then, when the Low Classical Library series was was coming out, that if they came across any discussion of homosexual practice in, say, a Greek author, you know what they would do? They would, instead of translating that portion into English, they would translate it into Latin (laughs) as a way of saying we don't want you to we don't want to corrupt anybody here i mean that's that's sort of similar to the mindset of um, ancient judaism uh, ancient israelite uh, thought and
0: early judaism and early christianity it's Mm -hmm. scandalous what would you say to those who would say that really at the heart of biblical sexual ethics is fidelity that and gender has really nothing to do with it. In other words, homosexual marriages are just fine as long as the couple are committed to each other.
1: Of course, fidelity is an important component for a valid sexual union. And in fidelity, we're thinking about uh, exclusive commitment to one's spouse in a lifelong, indissoluble union. That's fidelity. What does fidelity mean in a union, sexual union, that is reviewed by God as abhorrent? Take, Let's take again the analogy of an incestuous wedding. What would fidelity mean? So we have a case of the incestuous man in Corinth, mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, where man is sleeping with his stepmother, affine substitute to biological mother not even as bad as that, but they're trying to expand the borders so people don't commit any incest. And um, what, what, what would fidelity for Paul be in that kind of a union? Well, fidelity would mean to have stopped the union yesterday. To actually remain in the union, lifelong, is to remain, is to commit oneself to continue to engage in an abhorrent sexual practice, lifetime, how can that be fidelity?
2: That's the antithesis of fidelity because
1: longevity of a union is dependent on whether or not the union is in the first instance, a godly union. And if it's ungodly union, then fidelity means stop the union immediately. Not regularize it, not legitimize it, not commit oneself to it, not celebrate it, but to stop it. The problem with incest is not its incapacity for longevity or even exclusivity. The problem with incest, sorry, this hold on to your seat, fasten your seatbelts, this could be radical. The problem with incest is the incest. The problem with a same-sex union is the homoerotic character of the union. And that is not fixed by committing oneself lifelong to it. It rather
0: becomes even more abhorrent because you just don't stop.
2: Hmm.
0: Hmm. so some going to some are going to make the case that the bible really only condemns exploitative pederastic in other words man boy forms of homosexuality your comeback on that well there certainly were exploitative
1: forms in the greco-roman milieu chiefly as you mentioned pederastic relationships relationships with call boys so prostitution and relationship with slaves who didn't have a choice in the matter. Those certainly existed, Uh, but not only those exploitative forms of same-sex unions existed, but also non-exploitative forms. And these were known, well-known in the Greco-Roman world. You can go even into the classical period and look at Plato's Symposium. We have a speech by Aristophanes who notes that individuals are um, sometimes wired, if you will, from birth to desire their other half, which in this case, case happens to be a person of the same sex. And some may get married and procreate as a way of conforming to cultural norms. But they really don't want to do that, and really what they want to do is to be committed lifelong with a person of the same sex, because that's who they view as another half in relation to themselves. You have in the first, second century, you have texts from uh, the epigrammatist, Marshall, and from the satirist, Juvenal, referring to semi-official same-sex male marriages taking place in Rome. We have texts from Alexandria, Egypt, reporting the same thing going on. Semi-official marriages between men, also semi-official marriages between women. In fact, we have even the rabbis commenting on this. And we also have church fathers like Clement of Alexandria commenting on it. He talks, for example, in Paragogaas, about uh, women become, becoming sexually united in marriage with women, which he then adds, contrary to nature. See, the fact that they're engaged in a committing, committed, loving, long-term same-sex union doesn't ameliorate the problem. Of the homosexual
2: practice
1: it's still contrary to nature and the reason why it's contrary to nature should be obvious to everybody right i mean this is part of paul's point in romans one but maybe i'm getting ahead of myself here
0: well so are the the scriptural prohibitions against same-sex intercourse merely defined by ancient culture and some people say they're just no longer relevant today For instance, we we follow all the injunctions of the Old Testament now, and of course we don't. So we don't follow all the injunctions of the Old Testament. So why should we continue saying there's something special about homosexual conduct that ought to be binding from Scripture?
1: Well, there are some things that we don't follow. Slavery would be a classic example. But uh, slavery uh, was a sort of A substitute both for the absence of brick and mortar prisons and for the absence of a social welfare net in society. Uh, But there were lots of um, critical views against slavery within the biblical text. Uh, For example, the mandatory release dates for um, Hebrew slaves. Uh, You could actually run away to a shelter city and not be returned. If your kin is sold into slavery, you are obligated as kin to um, bring about their release if you have the wherewithal to do so. Israelites are constantly being reminded that you were liberated from slavery in Egypt. Do not impose that on others. Leviticus talks about, in connection with the Jubilee year, of course, release of the Jubilee of slaves, as well as eradication of debt, uh, and noting that when times when they are slaves, you're not to treat them as slaves, but as hired hands. Because again, you too were once slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed you from that enslavement. So that's an example of something uh, that we have changed on, but we actually find lots of elements within the biblical text justifying those changes. Uh, It's just that in the absence of a social welfare net, and in the absence of brick and mortar prisons, it's sometimes the only alternative that one can have. When we're talking about the issue of the Bible and on homosexual practice, totally different case. Because again, from the creation text on, this is not viewed as a male-female requirement, is viewed as the foundational matrix for all sexual ethics. And by very defini- definition, um, Same-sex intercourse of course, is an assault on that male-female requirement or prerequisite. So this is something we see existing before the fall. It's the first differentiation that occurs is a differentiation of the sexes. Out of which then comes the institution of marriage, where a man may become joined to a woman, and the two become one flesh. We have the image of an extraction from the original Adam or human, out of which is created a woman as the missing part, sexually speaking, of the male. So that when the text talks about in Genesis 2.24, that uh, a man may become joined to a woman and the two become one flesh, it's presuming that out of one flesh they emerged that a man and a woman are each other's sexual counterpart or complement, the missing element, sexually speaking, to the other sex. So we have a whole sexual spectrum consisting of two primary sexes, male and female, and each sex is only half of that whole spectrum. Marriage is then viewed as a holistic union of the two primary sexes into one and uh, moderating the extremes of each sex and filling in the gap. That's a consistent view throughout the biblical text. And so, again, when we're looking at the biblical text, we're not seeing something that the biblical witness holds its nose at and says, oh, gee, it's too bad we have to have put up with this. It's clearly portrayed from one end of the canon to the other end of the canon as God's foundational requirement for human sexual behavior.
0: So you've already brought this up just a bit, but what would you say to those who argue that same-sex intercourse is okay? I mean, Jesus never said anything about it, so must be okay. Yeah,
1: Jesus never said anything about incest either. Must be okay. Hmm. Well, again, that's the best analogy that one can put forward of an adult consensual union between two close kin related persons. That's the best analogy because it's an analogy that uh, in which you can have a committed adult union take place, a monogamous union. And the only primary reason why it's wrong is you're having sex with somebody who, structurally speaking is already too much you. Or, as we would say now, not enough differentiation in the gene pool. Hmm. Too much sameness on the level of kinship. What other union, sexual union, is like that? Well, it's same sex intercourse. What is the problem with same sex intercourse? Too much sameness. Here, now, not on the level of kinship, but something more critical to sexual identity sameness in gender a more essential element um, of sex than the issue of kinship relation. And therefore, when violated, more severe, even so. So let's look at Jesus. Jesus, in, Ma- in Mark 10, parallel to Matthew 19, was answering a question about divorce and remarriage. And Jesus arrived at a principle that if one party in the marriage attempts to dissolve that union and get in a sexual relationship with another, that's a problematic thing to do because Jesus said, God created us as only two, male and female. He created us, citing Genesis one twenty-seven, And then in Genesis 2.24, he cites that back to back for this reason. Uh, A man may leave his father and mother and become joined to his woman or wife, and the two become one flesh. What Jesus is arguing there is any more than two persons in the sexual union constitutes adultery because you're effectively only allowed one other person lifetime with whom to be in a sexual relationship. How does Jesus arrive at that conclusion? Where does he extrapolate the conclusion that there are to be only two persons in a sexual union. And by the way, he's not just speaking against remarriage after divorce. Implicitly, he's also rejecting polygamy or any other form of polyamorous relationship. Because obviously, if you're committing adultery, even after you give your spouse a writ of divorce, how much more so not having given that writ? I mean, that's the implication. And uh, it's easier, it's easier to prohibit um, polygamy than it is to prohibit remarriage after divorce because polygamy is the worst defense of the two. And we all know that in our society. We do prohibit polygamy. That's going to go eventually to be consistent. but we, We don't prohibit remarriage after divorce because we recognize that a form of serial polygamy is not as severe as concurrent polygamy. Everybody knows that. Well, why does Jesus arrive at this limitation of two persons to a sexual union? You know, at the beginning, he just cites one third of Genesis 127. Male and female, he made them. That's not a lot of text. The only thing you can get from that is God intentionally designed us as a sexual binary, male and female. And for that reason, since Jesus followed it up back to back with Genesis 2.24, it's for that reason that a man may become joined to a woman and the two, not three or four or more, become one flesh because each is half of that whole sexual spectrum intentionally designed by God for a union between true sexual complements or counterparts. In other words, the two-ness of the sexual bond that Jesus is stressing a limitation for, and thereby rejecting all forms of polyamory, is based on the intentional creation by God of two primary sexes. It's the 2 of the sexes that leads to the conclusion of a limitation of two persons to a sexual union. That means that Jesus is constructing a view about monogamy that is itself predicated on a male-female prerequisite for sex. As we all know, logically speaking, the foundation on which one predicates corollaries to that foundation is more important than the corollaries extrapolated from that foundation, because (laughs) it's more important because quite obviously it's the foundation. And for Jesus, what Jesus is saying is the foundation of all sexual ethics is a male-female requirement for sex. Now, not only is this obvious in the context of Mark 10, Matthew 19, but we also have a parallel text from a sectarian Jewish group known as the Essenes. The Dead Sea Scrolls are connected with the Essenes. Now the Essenes did not reject remarriage after divorce among their adherents. By the way, the Essenes very rigorous in their observance of the Mosaic law. So rigorous that they thought that the Pharisees were wimps when it came to observing the law. Not the picture we get in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. They they said they didn't say anything about remarriage after divorce for the town Essenes who could marry, but they did say something about polygamy. They told their own followers who could get married in the towns, as opposed to monastic Essenes at Qumran, because God created us, male and female, citing Genesis 1.27. And remember, they went into into Noah's ark, the animals went into the ark, male and female, two by two.
2: You are not allowed more than one wife in your lifetime. Assuming that is that your spouse is still
1: alive, mm-hmm. as long as your spouse is still alive. So, what did they do? They they deduced a limitation of two persons to a sexual union concurrently based on the same one third of Genesis 127 that Jesus cited. And the only and and why did they bring the Noah's Art text? Because that phrase "male and female" in Hebrews a keva, otherwise appears in the whole Hebrew Bible only in the Noah's Ark narratives, Genesis one twenty seven that we just cited, and a restatement of Genesis one twenty seven in Genesis five one to two, introducing a genealogy just just in those texts, and what they were doing is a typical Jewish uh, hermeneutical technique. They were looking for a text that talked about male and female in relation to marriage, but also a text that would correlate male and female with two, the number two, as a limiting number. And so that's why they brought those texts together. Um, So there's no question that in terms of what Jesus was doing by citing Genesis 127, the one third of it. He was saying that's the foundation of sexual ethics, male and female, two halves of a whole sexual spectrum that can unite into a single integrated sexual whole, and the logic of that tells us that we should not be having more than two persons concurrently in a sexual union. Mm. So, so I'm saying, and this might lead into another question of yours: what's the what's the potential harm, right? Well, one of the potential harms of rejecting that foundation. Uh, is that you eliminate a rejection of a whole lot of other forms of sexually immoral behavior. I mean, why would you reject a a committed polyamorous union between three or more partners concurrently? Why? Why can't that happen? The only only reason you can get from scripture, from creation, from nature for it, is the supposition that there's something important about God's intentional creation— of two sexual, two and only two sexual counterparts or complements. It's the twoness of the sexes that's the predicate, the foundation for determining a limitation of two persons through sexual union. Third party is neither necessary nor desirable because once you brought together male and female in a sexual union, a third party is neither necessary nor desirable. You already have the totality of the sexual spectrum. So the issue of polyamory is related uh, as a rejection of it as a conclusion to a male-female requirement. Same thing with regard to incest between adult consenting persons. Uh, That's the same kind of issue because why is incest wrong as we noted? It's sex between structural sames, persons who are too much alike, not enough other, and that's even more keenly uh, indicated in a same-sex uh, union, where the gender of the persons is a more essential element of human sexuality than is kinship.
0: Any other negative effects of societal endorsement of homosexuality that comes to mind? Sure, it, it sort of gets at the philosophical
1: basis for rejecting same-sex unions. I mean, why why should we reject? Other than you know, scripture. Okay, we, we've indicated scripture is clearly opposed. By the way, we didn't even get to Romans one, or 1 Corinthians six nine, or 1 Timothy one ten. We could we have time for that. We could do a little of that. But but um, I think we've pretty much shown that you know Scripture has a clear position of this from creation on. Uh, but apart from Scripture, gee, why is it wrong? Why why would you know? And people do stumble over themselves trying to figure it out. Again, it's like it's like going to a cocktail party and saying, "Why not have sex with your mother?" I mean. I'm sure I'll stop conversation cold, but most people are not going to be able to come up with a quick reason why incest is wrong if it's adult, not intergenerational, committed, exclusive, long-term. Why is it wrong? We intuit it's wrong. We have a visceral reaction to it when we think about it. Well, why do we get that visceral reaction? Is that just incest phobia? Or is there some legitimate, reasonable basis for rejecting incest? And of course there is. I mean, we see the symptoms of incest, a higher incidence of procreative abnormalities, but that's only the symptom. It's a symptom of the root harm. The root harm is too much identity among the participants on a structural level, on the level of kinship not enough kinship otherness. It's like having sex with yourself. All right, now let's take that and apply that analogously to the issue of homosexual practice. Okay, what is the problem with homosexual practice? Well, the very nomenclature of homosexual or same-sex union, so I'm getting a little uh, sound here when things are coming in, um, but um Same-sex unions and homosexuality, homoios, meaning like or same, tells you what's wrong with it. Too much identity among the participants on the level of gender, right? So think about the logic of a heterosexual union. I ask everyone to think about that. The logic of a heterosexual union, as we've already stated at several points, which is also the logic that we see in scripture itself, is that each sex constitutes one half of a whole sexual spectrum. Two halves unite to form an integrated sexual whole. When a man is attracted to a woman or a woman is attracted to a man, they are not attracted to what they already essentially are as a sexual being. They're attracted
2: to what they essentially are not. what then is the logic of a same-sex
1: or homosexual union? Are the persons in that relationship attracted to what, sexually speaking, they are not? The exact opposite. They're sexually attracted to what they already essentially are. Men for essential masculinity.
2: Women for Essential Femininity. Now, we should be able to intuit that there's something problematic about that. Why,
1: if I'm a man, a essentially masculine being, my body organized reproductively as a masculine being, why would I be erotically stimulated or aroused by what I essentially already am as a sexual being? Now, at one level, you could call that sexual narcissism because you're attracted to what you already essentially are. But I don't think that's the main problem because... There's a reason why gender nonconformity is the biggest indicator of subsequent homosexual development. And that is because persons who exhibit what they regard as high level of gender nonconformity experience persons of the same sex as other in relation to themselves. If the logic of other sex union is two halves make an integrated whole, The logic of a same-sex union is two half-males become a whole male, two half-females become a whole female, so that one is conceiving oneself not as half in relation to a whole sexual spectrum involving two primary sexes, but rather half in relation to one's own sex. But God has not created us as half-males and half females. Now this is where I can see how surreptitiously I draw Romans 1 here. Okay, bring in Romans 1 in the text. When Paul talks about homosexual practice in Romans 1, 24 to 27, he brings in the language of dishonoring, degrading. And that both the noun atomia and the verb atomazo the nominative verb, drawn off of the noun. And the reason why he does that is precisely for the reasons that I just stated. It takes a being that God has created whole as male or whole as female and treats it as though it's only half intact, only half intact in relation to one's own sex. That's the problem and that dishonors the person that God has created in his image. Now a person can say well image bearing has nothing to do with your sexual identity. Oh yes it does. How do we know that? Because of the text in Genesis 1:27 where it talks about God creating us in his likeness and his image and then follows it up with stating that God created us male and female. That's a way of saying that contrary to other opinions prevailing in the ancient Near East. What we do sexually matters to our image bearing. You know, I've like always liked to throw in my sweet little dog, Benji, who's a Morkey, And uh, we didn't get him for his brains. We got him for his beauty and his cuteness. He's a, just a sweet, sweet dog. But I've noticed when I take Benji out for a walk and he meets other dogs, i like, oh, Benji. You know, it's like show some decorum. You know, if he meets a female dog, it's like, I won't go into any details. Now, Benji, I found, is not very monogamous. You know? to Benji, he would have a harem. But does God hold that against Benji? No. Why? Benji's a dog. He's not created in God's image. But genesis one twenty seven, although creating us male and female is similar to the animals previously created, what's different is only in the case of humans is their creation as male and female integrated with their image bearing. And so that's a way of saying that what we do sexually can either enhance or threaten to efface that image bearing. In other words, do we behave as the humans that God created us to be in fellowship with himself and caretakers of the creation on his behalf or do we behave in such a way that we become like the animals? Hmm. And it's not accidental that the very foundation enunciated in Genesis 1:27 is male and female he made them. You see, this is why it can't be loving to support same sex unions. Because by doing so, one dishonors the stamp of gender placed on that person by the Creator and Redeemer and treats them as only half what they actually are. That also according to scripture, is a high-risk behavior. You see how they're now secretly I bring in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 here to that, where Paul gives us a vice or offender list, expands the number of sexual offenses, sexually immoral persons that he had previously mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians 5. Same vice list adds three more sexual offenses, one of them including men who lie with a male, and the other including Greek word malakoi, soft men, men who actively feminize themselves to attract male sex partners. And he says, he includes this among the list, along with the incestuous man, along with adulterers, along with idolaters and others, as among those, if they should persist in such behavior, they will be excluded from the kingdom of God. He says, don't deceive yourselves. He actually makes that point several times in vice or offenderless, also in Galatians 5 and and in Ephesians 5 or 6. And what would be deceiving yourself in the context? Deceiving yourself would be thinking that you could continue to engage in this behavior in a serial, unrepentant way and get away with it. Simply because you confess Jesus as Lord, you're not going to be able to get away with it. You can mouth all you want the words of confession that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But Paul is saying to his converts, if in your sexual life you live as if Jesus is not Savior or Lord, then he isn't for all intents and purposes, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He states also the same thing in Galatians, where he lists sexual offenses as the first three vices in the vice list, first three, even before idolatry. And he says to them, I've warned you before. And I'm warning you again, that if you engage in such behavior, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So how could this possibly be loving? First, we're dishonoring the individual by treating their sex stamped on their being by the creator, integrated with their image bearing. We're treating it as only half intact and dishonoring them. And secondly, we're encouraging them into a form of behavior, which according to scripture can get them excluded from the kingdom of God, a form of behavior that is an assault on what Jesus defined as the very foundation of human sexual ethics, male and female, he made them. And for that reason, a man and only a man and a woman and only a woman those two can join into a single integrated sexual whole, one flesh. And so we're also then separating that individual from Jesus as their savior and Lord. I don't think that that's loving. And I think the church that moves in that direction has any denomination that does so has ceased to be a viable representative Of Jesus Christ
0: to the world. So some people is going to make the case that the Bible, the the writers of scripture, uh, you know, inspired writers of scripture couldn't have recognized the scientific component of this millennium. And therefore they didn't get the genetic component that we know of today. Uh, And your response to that, I mean, should that play a role in our understanding of scripture? yeah, that's that's one of the two main um,
1: revisionist arguments for discounting the the biblical witness, the so-called new knowledge arguments, that they didn't know that people could be born that way. And had they known, they would have a, they would have a different view of the issue. There are many different kinds of responses to that. One is that, Do people not realize that innateness is not an indication of morality? I mean, let's think about that for a second. Why would the reigning metaphor for discipleship in early Christianity, according to both Jesus and Paul, why would the reigning metaphor be death as a metaphor for discipleship? If we were basically good persons governed by good innate impulses, you wouldn't pick dying to self, being crucified with Christ, taking up your cross, denying yourself, losing your life. And that's the reigning metaphor. So we have to conclude that, wow, we've got a whole lot of innate urges to do things that God has expressly forbidden and they don't become permitted simply because they're innate. Now, if somebody cannot think of a series of innate urges that they regularly experience that violates the will of God, then I would say, first of all, number one, get married because... (laughs) It's pretty easy to think that you're a great person when you're not in close quarters with another person for the rest of your life, who probably I'm just guessing, you could ask most people's spouse,, um, you know, someone's your spouse thinks he's a, he or she is a perfect human being, what do you think about that? Well, I love them, but you know, honey, you know, no offense, but you're not perfect, right? I mean that's that's something that you grow up to learn very quickly when you get married, right? Because people see what you're like when the door is closed. And they don't even see all your inner thoughts, which is even worse. But they see the manifestation in your private life, which you're able to keep away from the church. And maybe even deceive yourself. And I think like when I was a single guy, I never did anything that I, I thought I was doing wrong or disagreed with. I always did, you know, of course, under God. Um, but uh, you know, then I found that when I became married, I was somewhat of a selfish being. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's hard to know that you're selfish when you're the only one in the room. okay? so, so all of that is to say, innate desires, many innate desires are sinful, and they don't get exempted because they're innate. So jealousy, envy, pride, greed. All sorts of lusts. I mean, one can go on and on. These most of the innate desires that I experience are desires that God wants me to mortify, put to death. That's why you have that exhortation in the perenesis or moral advice of Scripture constantly. Put it to death, mortify it. Okay. So let's even suppose, for the sake of argument that people are born gay. That's not exactly true, by the way. But let's just suppose that for the sake of argument, it is. Would that mean then that it's something that we should then entertain in our thought life and engage in in our behavior? Simply because it's innate, well, obviously not. Obviously not, because we have all these other innate things. When Paul defines what sin is in Romans 7, He talks about sin as an innate impulse passed on by an ancestor, running through the members of the human body, and never entirely within human control. If you were to say that innateness is an ameliorating or even disqualifying factor for being sin, you would have to say sin isn't sin, which is extraordinary. In other words, it's absurd, it's ludicrous. Now, going beyond that, two other arguments to be made. One is they did have some knowledge in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, of some degree of innate congenital attraction to persons of the same sex experienced by some, and yet still, even many Greek and Roman moralists and physicians operating out of a pagan environment, still some rejected noting that innateness is not to be equated with what is moral, a rather obvious point that even the pagans understood. But apparently now, which some Christians today don't understand, which is an indictment on Christian faith. We're behind the pagans in the first, second century AD in some things, which is pretty pathetic when you ask me. Because we can think, if we should be able to think analogically where that doesn't, shows that that kind of argument doesn't make sense. So if they could reject even forms of homosexual practice, typically, for example, thought of as especially masculinized women who are attracted to other women, especially effeminate males serving as a passive receptive partners in homosexual intercourse with other males. These are the ones typically attributed with some degree of of innate or congenital homosexual risk factor or influences if even the, some pagan moralists and philosophers and physicians could reject these, what is the likelihood that anybody in in early Judaism or early Christianity would have accepted it? I mean, what is the likelihood that Paul, after just giving his vice or offender list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and saying that men who lie with a male will not inherit the kingdom of God, stop deceiving yourself, if that right after that, Two men came up to Paul and said, Paul, you know what? We're innately attracted to each other as men, sexually attracted. Uh, You don't mean us, do you? When you just said that, Paul would say like, what what are you not hearing? What did you miss? I mean, it doesn't, man who lies with a male doesn't matter whether it's innate or not innate because the offense is the men having sexual intercourse with other males which by the way, the rabbis uh, talk about the Levitical sexual prohibitions and say that male with whom the man lies can be either an adolescent or an adult. In other words, the Levitical prescriptions take in both, not just indicting pederasty. It's so also an indicting adult consensual sexual use. We know it's consensual, by the way, because Leviticus 20, repeating the sex laws in Leviticus 18, but now prioritizing them according to degree of severity, of which the one against man male intercourse is in the top tier, Uh, in that context, they say their blood be upon them, which is a culpability formula that's used when the two persons consent to the behavior in question. So we're not talking about somebody having it forced on them. Just like when Paul talks about males being inflamed with their desire for males, He's, he's talking about a mutuality, a reciprocity. So he's not talking about doing it to an, a slave who doesn't want to have it done to him or to an ad- adolescent who doesn't want to have it done. Talking about mutual, reciprocal, same-sex relationships. Paul, understanding sin, what it is, as an innate impulse, he's suddenly going to say now, oh, that's an, that is an innate components? Well, then that, forget that. Forget my prescription of that. It's like, why would he do? He doesn't do that for any other area that and that involves innate desires to do things that God forbids. Why would he carve out a special area for it to be done here? And then finally, talk about is it really uh, born that way? You know, I think that there are biological influences, risk factors for homosexual development, largely indirect. For example, the key into gender nonconformity that then create a perception that a person of the same sex as other in relation to myself, exotic in relation to myself, which leads me to desire that which I don't have, and leads me to desire affirmation of my own sex, which I am treating as though only half intact. You know, that's... That's not something that is going to be promoted in scripture. It's going to be something rejected in scripture. That innate desire is skewed. It's an innate desire skewed against the will of God that dishonors our own selves, that God has stamped his image on. So no, we're not gonna, it's not, it's not by the way, now, sorry, circling back for a moment there. It's not even what we've learned scientifically, a deterministic thing it's a risk factor for homosexual development. It's not like I could go no other way. I mean, I just posted recently on, you know, Bill Maher. Bill Maher of all people, leftist, comedian, right? Even he did a recent thing where he showed, you know, back in the 1940s, less than 1% of all persons identified as gay or transgender. Now, if we talk about the Gen C generation, we're talking of upwards of 20%. He said, could it be that culture is having an impact, not only on, on LGBTQ identif- self-identification, but also in terms of the desire itself? You know, So we're seeing that culture does have an impact. Who would have ever thought in that limited period of time, even from the 1970s to now, we would be not only tripling, even more than quadrupling, I don't know what other name I could give to five, six, seven, eight times what it was, that's all because of cultural affirmation of it. And this information was already known back in the 1990s. The National Health and Social Life Survey, done by a team of University of Chicago researchers, they said that we thought when we explored the issue of homosexuality, we would conclude that it's somewhat like left-handedness. It's, it's not really, it doesn't really fluctuate significantly based on different demographic variables. But you know what we found out? That's not the case. We found out that demographic variables when they change, like for example, living in a rural versus urban area or the issue of education can significantly impact the incidence of homosexual self-identification and desire. So we've known this for a long time and now it's just clearer than ever. And yet we still have people talking about born that way. Like it's gonna be some rigid number no matter what happens in the broader culture. Well, that's absurd. Now there is higher risk factors for particular individuals and some of that can key into biology. Some of that can key into relationship with the same sex parents. Some of that can key into relationship with same sex peers but it's not a
0: deterministic mechanism. So what do proponents of biblical sexual ethics need to do in coming days to disciple, teach, train our denominations to be what they need to be on this issue?
1: I think we're in the shape that we are in today because the church has not been doing its job, either for the broader culture or even sadly within its own walls. So in the broader culture, what we need to be doing is voting with this issue very much firmly in mind, making this a, along with issues like abortion, which involves the taking of human life, uh, being the main issues that we decide who we're gonna vote for and who we're not gonna vote for. Because now we're getting into issues, as you know, nationally, where men are invading female private spaces taking over female sports, where children are being indoctrinated at the earliest ages into the whole LGBTQ idolatry, which is increasing the amount of self-identification, both as gay and as transgender in our culture. We are now also facing things like compelled speech in the culture, in terms of adopting transgender pronouns and names. And if you don't, you're fired. Or you're precluded from entering this profession. I and mean, this is this is getting as radical as it can possibly be. And Christians are sort of like, I don't know, putting their head in the sand, twiddling their thumbs, thinking, yeah, and there are other important issues too. Really? For your children, for free speech, for free exercise of religion. Really? <laughs> you got something more important than that. I mean, basically what the state is now promoting is nothing, nothing less than child abuse. So you can, you, can, you can chemically castrate a child, but in, in most of those states where you could do that, they can't even get a tattoo without a, without a parental permission. But you can make them infertile for life. It's astounding. And, and now in some states like Oregon, California, you don't even have to report to your report to the parents if your child has run away where your child is because we can treat the parents if they don't affirm that transgender transition, we can treat them as the equivalent of, uh, of abusers of children. So that's one thing, what we say publicly. In the church, we need to start talking more about sex That is not an ideal thing to do. It's it's been good in the past to have a certain amount of reticence to talk about these kind of very personal issues. But if we don't do it now, we're giving up the education of our children to the state and to the Hollywood and the news media outlets. Uh, Because they're they're full court press 24-7 they're coming out with their indoctrination and their compulsory indoctrination. And it's affecting all of life. It's affecting parenting. It's affecting the church. It's affecting children's lives. It's affecting occupations. It's affecting free speech. This is a big issue. If the church does not educate its own Somebody else will, and it will be into immorality. So the church has to get off of its embarrassment about talking about intimate issues like this, and now speaking about it on a regular basis, focusing on the creation text, focusing on Jesus's view of sexual ethics, focusing on what Paul had to do when he moved from a Jewish context to a Gentile matrix, where talking about sexual purity was number two on his list to converts after talking about idolatry. Once we get squared away, you worship only Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. Once that's squared away, the number two issue for him to deal with among converts that he states in almost all his letters is sexual purity. Even in the first extant letter that we have of Paul's in 1 Thessalonians, after three chapters of thanksgiving for the communities turning away from idols to the one true living God and remaining faithful in the midst of persecution, when he moves up of that to talk about moral exhortation, Herenesis in chapter four, first issue, sex. And he makes quite clear to them, I've warned you before, warned you again, you have to abstain From sexual immorality and those who do not do so god will be an avenger against all such persons because he has given his holy spirit into you and this immorality defiles the spirit so bam very first first extent text of paul's first discussion of ethics sex now how many churches do we know of that are doing that virtually zero if they talk about it it's on the periphery or we'll just do it for a sunday school class that people attend that most people are not going to attend anyway and we'll hardly even do it there that has to stop because the whole edifice of sexual ethics for the church is now under major assault and with that under major assault Comes an assault of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over his church. So it's it granted, it's we're not in a great place right now. But I'd like to tell people, even though I'm generally a glass half-empty kind of guy, I will admit, because most of my predictions about how bad things are going to get have turned out to be true. Sadly, I wish that was incorrect. But I like to be a little glass half full when I say this. Although we're in a bad position now, culturally speaking, and even within the walls of the church itself, it's never gonna be better moving forward than it is today. Maybe today's not so good, but it's better than tomorrow. And it's better than next week and next month and next year and the next five years and the next 10 years. It's hard to talk about it now. You may have a cost to pay for talking about it, but you have to talk about it now for the sake of the children, for the sake of the church that God has redeemed, and for the sake of the God who redeemed us, and even for the sake of the offenders. Because that's Paul's point when he deals with the incestuous man at Corinth. I'm the one that loves him, Paul is saying. You who tolerate his incestuous conduct, you don't love him. You ought rather to have been mourning. Where do you mourn? You mourn at a funeral." This is what's happening to this guy if you don't do anything about it. That's why I can say, and by the way, even though it's incest and we have no Jesus saying, he doesn't have on incest, he doesn't have to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do in a case of incest? I got no clue. And that's an absurd thing. He knows immediately in the name of the Lord Jesus, take the following action because everything is at stake. You know, We would think nothing if a child... With the touch, one of our children were to touch a hot stove or walk across a heavily trafficked street where the light hasn't changed, we would think nothing of doing everything in our power to prevent our child from being burned or hit by a car. But in terms of salvation, apparently that's not as big a deal. Well, it needs to be a huge deal for us in the church because scripture is quite clear. Sexual immorality can get one excluded from the kingdom. And the foundational element of all human sexuality is the male female requirement. And when you take that away, you pull the rug out from the entire edifice of sexual ethics. Now you can go on, you can continue to be inconsistent if you want to be, but that's what you at best would be. You continue to reject other things while you you pull the rug out from the foundation. Well. I guess there's some value of being inconsistent when you're, when you're doing the wrong thing. But Jesus doesn't want us to be uh, more consistently disobedient to the will of God. He wants us to be more consistently obedient to that will. And even if we've compromised in some other areas already, those areas, number one, are not as severe, and number two, there's no virtue to being uh, more consistently disobedient to the
0: will of God. All right. It's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to the life-changing discipleship broadcast with Matt Friedman. We want you to check out our Facebook page and always check out what we've got on teleos press teleospress.com because a lot of really great books there. And I think you really enjoy them. And remember, this Westside Biblical Seminary place where I teach, wonderful place, the fastest growing seminary in America, and very diverse and very wonderful, and the instruction is first class. So just remember, tell everybody about our podcast, and remember this, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you I thank you for listening to this program today. We want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, that ought to be obvious. And God bless you, friend. We'll see you back here next week.